Hello and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. We are headstrong into the winter season, or as some of us like to call the the cold front season, where we get a lot of these cold fronts coming across uh, system by system, and sometimes it brings a big storm, a big nor'easter as we call it. Other times, maybe not so much. (laughs) We'll get a bunch of snow, and then a couple days later, it's all going to melt because we get rain. I mean, we've had some really strange weather patterns the past couple of weeks. Uh, And again, with these cold fronts, uh, one of the byproducts of of a, a chunk of cold air moving rapidly across uh, into the northeast across the states and then into the northeast is that it leaves behind a lot of wind and that's one of the things i wanted to talk about today uh, was wind. the title this this episode being crosswind landings i'm going to talk about uh interesting crosswind encounter i had in kennedy a couple weeks ago but i wanted to dive in a a little explanation about how uh, the wind works and orientation with the runways and and some dangers uh, with the wind one of them being wind shear, specifically low-level wind shear. Uh, So first of all, taking a step back to to the fundamentals of wind and how it works, uh, there can be a a lot of causes to... um, how the wind will begin, but but in terms of the circulation in the atmosphere, without going too far in depth, <laughs> that, that could be a whole uh, an hour plus long uh, discussion or more. But anyway, with like I mentioned, uh, with these these cold fronts, they come through. Uh, there's there's a great change in temperature, and with the center portion of, of a system that moves through, it has a, a low pressure center. And you'll hear uh, on the Weather Channel or, or other uh, news channel, but their, their meteorologists will talk a lot about how a weather system will have a, a certain pressure, uh, the, the center of it will have a, a really low pressure. And specifically when they talk about hurricanes too, the lower the pressure, the higher chance for higher winds. And the reason for this is just in nature, things want to balance, right? So high pressure wants to move towards low pressure to equalize out. So if you have a low pressure center that's incredibly low in pressure, all the high pressure is going to try and go towards it, and then you get wind. And this is referred to as the, the pressure gradient force. It's just a difference in pressure between the high pressure and the low pressure. And so when you have really low pressure, you have a tendency for high winds. And that's what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. And, and it happens a lot uh, during the winter. Again, as we call it the cold front season, we, we get a lot of these systems that come across and create a lot of these whipping winds, which poses quite, quite a few challenges for us in the flying world. One of those uh, challenges that, that I mentioned is, is wind shear, specifically low-level wind shear. And in the pilot's handbook of, of aeronautical knowledge, the definition of wind shear is, is really good, so I'm just going to read it. Wind shear is a sudden, drastic change in wind speed and or direction over a very small area. Wind shear can subject an aircraft to violent updrafts and downdrafts, as well as abrupt changes to the horizontal movement of the aircraft. While wind shear can occur at any altitude, low-level wind shear is especially hazardous due to the proximity of an aircraft to the ground. Low-level wind shear is commonly associated with passing frontal systems, thunderstorms, temperature inversions, and strong upper-level winds. 
in excess of, of 25 knots. So there you have it. That's that's the, the main definition of, of low-level wind shear. Uh, and like I said, with, with uh, passing frontal systems, in this case with the cold front system, we will get a lot of wind shearing events. And it'll be really interesting. We'll be coming on uh, an arrival into an airport and we'll see, uh, you know, with, with all the technology we have up front these days, you know, we're able to actually uh, see what the wind direction is and velocity because of our GPS coordinates, our track over the ground, uh, comparing that data to the airspeed. We're able to determine, the GPS is able to determine how strong the winds are. And so we can be coming on an arrival and we'll see winds in excess of 100 knots. And then all of a sudden we'll, we'll get down towards the surface of the earth and that will drop. Uh, and then you'll get, you know, because of that, that sudden uh, change in velocity and, and, and oftentimes direction, uh, you're going to get this shearing event. And that's going to cause a lot of turbulence too. So if you're ever on a flight and it seems nice and smooth and then all of a sudden you're just entering a ton of bumps and you're looking outside the window and there's not a cloud in sight, that can have to do with a change, a sudden change in, in wind direction and velocity uh, causing some of those bumps. So about, uh, let's see, a couple weeks ago we were coming in, one of our legs coming into Kennedy. I think it was a longer one. I think it was uh, Orlando, Florida to, to New York's Kennedy. Uh, and so taking off out of Orlando, uh, this time of year, you know, winter uh, does occur in Florida, or at least a Floridian version of winter, where it's just a little bit colder. Um, not exactly my definition of winter with snow and uh, and, and stronger winds, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it was a little chillier, probably even the mid 50s uh, Fahrenheit. And we took off, went on our way, and I remember it, it was my leg uh, was flying, and. I remember started, you know, halfway through the leg, somewhere over the Carolinas, maybe DC. I started to slowly get ready for the arrival, you know, setting up the approach, getting all the weather information and figuring out what orientation Kennedy was landing. And they were advertising that they were landing uh, 1-3, um, the 1-3s, 1-3, or no, I think it was 3-1s. It was 3-1s, that's right. They were landing northwest. They were landing northwest. So typically landing northwest... Uh, a lot of times you'll land on the right runway, 3-1 right. Uh, sometimes they'll, they'll have you land on 3-1 left, but for uh, this one it was 3-1 right. So the, the very northeast runway on the airport. So I set all that up. I, I plug in the approach, get that all squared away, and then I look at the winds and I say, huh, the winds are 2-2-0. I forget what the, the constant speed uh, of the winds, but the gusts were um, in excess of 35 knots, I believe out of 220, so out of the, um, that would be southwest. So here we are landing to the northwest uh, on, a, on a 310 track, right, is, is the direction you'd be landing. And the winds are whipping out of almost the south, 220. That's a direct crosswind. Uh, and when I'm spinning out all these numbers, it's it's referring to the, the cardinal direction, right? So 310, runway 31 right is, is 310 degrees. So out of uh, the 360 degrees, 360 being north, 180 being south, 270 being uh, west, 090 being east, you get the picture. So 310 is, is slightly to the northwest. Uh, and then we had winds almost out of the south at 220. They were favoring runway 22, uh, both the 22s and Kennedy. But they were landing 3-1, which was really interesting. One of the things about the New York airports is if one of them is landing a certain orientation, the other ones have to match up, specifically with Newark and LaGuardia and Kennedy. 
Uh, Teterboro can be affected a, a little bit as well, but the volume of traffic is not quite as much in Teterboro as it is the other three. Uh, so it's it's challenging for New York's airspace to to orient. You know, okay, what's the best way for the aircraft to arrive given the the current wind conditions? And so. Again, this situation, for whatever reason, what was working for them is that they were landing the three ones, and I believe they were departing the two twos. And this meant uh, a significant crosswind, a very uh, big crosswind. And when the runway is dry for the Embraer 190, the maximum crosswind component is 38 knots. And when the runway is wet, uh, just just a little bit wet, not like any crazy ice or anything on the runway, uh, I believe it's 31 knot direct crosswind. So we were looking at if the runway was wet, which it was luckily dry, but if the runway was wet, we would actually be exceeding the crosswind limitation, which is pretty crazy. Uh, but the runway was dry, even though it had rained... Or, or I guess it was the, the back end of that snowstorm, and then it all melted, and then uh, eventually it did dry up. So the runway surface was pretty dry. And I just remember kind of going through it, you know, setting up for this approach and briefing it over with the captain saying, this is probably the strongest crosswind that I've ever landed in. Uh, and that was a good thing to brief. You know, one of the things we, we include in all of our briefings is what a major threat is for the day uh, and, and what we're going to do to help mitigate any kind of those threats. And so the, the big one for this is if, if the approach is unstable, you can always go around and try again. Uh, and Kennedy was going to keep landing runway three ones until enough people started going around before they might think of switching to another runway. That's just kind of how it how it happens sometimes. Because uh, when it works for them and, you know, pilots keep landing the same direction, they're not going to make any changes. But as soon as enough go-arounds happen, they, they might have to uh, change the runway around. But anyway, they were sticking with the three ones. People were landing in front of us. So I knew that, you know, it was definitely, it was definitely possible to land in this. It would just be a really good challenge. Uh, so coming in on the arrival the, for the uh, for three one right. It was pretty uh, pretty interesting, kind of like I mentioned earlier. You know, the winds can be very high uh, on the arrival, and then they'll kind of die down. And there was this shift. Uh, it was nice and smooth on the arrival, and then boom, passing through three thousand feet, we we felt the wind shift, and it it was both direction shift and and also the uh, velocity of the wind as well. And all of a sudden, it was just bumpy, 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 which was really strange because, again, really smooth on the arrival and then wham, just kind of hits you. And I could I could tell it was going to come because looking down over the water, when you're arriving on 3-1 right, you're, you're um, kind of south of Long Island as you get vectored out for the approach. And I remember just looking down and just seeing tons of white caps on, on the water, you know, where there's these little waves that are occurring out in the ocean and uh, they're cresting over and, and creates that foamy, frothy white, uh, you know, the bubbles essentially, hence the, the name white caps. I just remember seeing those thinking to myself, oh yeah, this is going to be sporty. Absolutely. So came in on the arrival uh, when you've got a significant crosswind. You want to have the aircraft lined up with the center of the, the runway to, to make sure that, you know, our left to right track is lined up with the center of the runway. But because of the wind direction, the nose can't be pointed right at the runway. If the winds were calm, your, your direction of flight, your, your path, 
would be straight with the nose. But because the winds were coming, were howling almost to 40 knots from directly our left, I had to have the nose oriented to the left. So it's what we call a crabbing angle. So I was very much crabbed to the left in order to compensate for the amount of crosswind. So it's this really bizarre sight picture where you're looking to your right at about a 30 degree angle. So your head is literally tilted to the right while the aircraft is pointed to the left and you're looking to the right at the runway and you're kind of flying sideways. And it's this very strange feeling. And it, it can really throw off your situation awareness and, and kind of figuring out what the aircraft is doing and how you are configured at the, at the time. And so trusting your instruments is the number one rule. Even though we were completely visual, I think we broke out of the clouds at like 5,000 feet. I could see for more than 10 miles. The visibility was really good. But it was just so eerie because you're pointed sideways and the bumps are very strong. You're fighting the aircraft. I, I still, I left the autopilot on for a little bit because I wanted to really uh, make sure I was nice and configured, you know, with the flaps out, the, the gear fully down before I thought of uh, disconnecting the autopilot. Uh, and when that time came, it was it was a real fight to tell my brain that, yep, you're right on the center line, you're right on glide path, this is looking great. Even though you're flying pretty much sideways, <laughs> everything is great. Uh, coming on the arrival, the, the yoke was moving oh, so much, you know, you're just fighting to keep it uh, right on track. And one of the interesting things with the uh, a lot of these modern jets these days, the Embraer, I believe a lot of the Boeing aircraft have it as well, is, is auto throttles, which means that the throttles are moving by themselves. And when you're in the approach configuration, the aircraft is, is maintaining its speed via the, the thrust setting. And so as soon as there's a, a shift, a, a wind shearing event, right, where you have a, a loss of, of speed on the nose, it's going to detect that loss of airspeed, and so the to counteract that, it's going to increase the thrust. So you're going to see the throttles moving up and down to try and compensate. But one of the things about these auto throttle systems is, although they're very advanced, they're a little more reactive than being proactive. Uh, and so by the time the wind shift occurs, then it reacts and either increases or decreases the thrust. But the human side of it, you can kind of anticipate. You start to feel the sink right away when you're losing a little bit of that lift. Uh, and instead of waiting for the aircraft to correct itself, you can override those throttles, which is really nice. So it's this little uh, servo motor that's constantly moving these throttles back and forth. Uh, and then a lot of times we'll override these throttles. And so, uh, you know, maybe I need more thrust. I'll move the advance the thrust levers uh, beyond what the aircraft thinks they need to be set in order to give myself a little more of a buffer to anticipate the oncoming uh, drop uh, with, again, maybe a loss in airspeed, right? Or, or uh, there's just a, a downdraft causing the aircraft to, to sink a little bit. So a lot of overriding of, of the throttles and you hear this ning, 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 this little humming noise as you're overriding the servo motors, which is it's pretty interesting, but you get used to it. Uh, and and it's, it's so necessary. Uh, would the plane be able to do without that? Any kind of human intervention overriding? Yeah. Um, just the, the probability of, of an uh, unstable approach is, is definitely higher. Just because, like I said, it's a little more reactive than being proactive. Because, yeah, computers do a really good job 
but the seat of the pants kind of uh, feel that a pilot can get with just the experience over time of, of sitting and feeling that aircraft, you can you can anticipate when there's going to be a drop or when there's going to be an updraft and how to uh, to react to that. So it's it's just going back to the fundamentals of uh, seat of the pants flying, so to speak. But with that being said, it's not quite. 100% seat of the pants because this is a jet. This is not a little uh, Cessna, you know. I mean, with with a Cessna, you get so used to it where you could remove all the instruments and you could land that completely with with no instrumentation whatsoever. But in a in a jet, it's it's a lot different. You know, you really have to uh, rely on the aid of those instruments to get you in. So, like I said, crabbed sideways, really fighting the temptation to swing the nose back around because if I swung the nose back around too early we would drift to the right of center line. That's what we don't want. So, but eventually we do have to straighten out the nose, right? Because uh, the landing gear are, you know, the, the wheels are, are straight, right? They're straight with the aircraft. They're not gonna land sideways. So as we're coming on the arrival, we're uh, getting through 500 feet and really fighting, uh, then down to 200 feet, then right at around 50 feet. Uh, I remember I started pulling back the throttle uh, and I started, swinging the nose over and with this much of a crabbing angle uh, for, for that cross one the sight picture is just so strange and for whatever reason I started my flare a little bit early in many situations this is fine there's there's plenty of, of time to fix it uh, but I also had an increase in speed because we did have uh, some icing conditions earlier on the arrival so with any possibility of, of ice accumulation on the aircraft, you have to increase your speed to uh, compensate for any increase in drag that that ice might have uh, put on the, the airframe. So we were coming in 10 knots faster than, than normal for the approach speed. We were uh, a little bit heavy. I can't remember if we were that heavy. Eh, closer. I think we were closer to the max landing weight, so a little bit heavier than, than I was used to landing. Uh, so a couple of these factors really played into how as soon as we got to 50 feet, I started pulling the power back as I started bringing the nose over, um, which this was all kind of happening simultaneously at, at 50 feet, I began my flare where I'd pull back on the elevator on the yoke a little bit to, to bring that nose up to keep the nose from, from planting down. And I did that a little too soon because we started floating down the runway a little bit. Uh, and I remember the captain, he was awesome, really great guy that I, with, that I flew with. He, he said, oh, just try and get it down a little bit more because the main thing is that we have to get the aircraft touched down by or within the, the touchdown zone. And, and the touchdown zone on, on many of these larger runways is it's, it's denoted by a bunch of these markings and it's the first 3,000 feet. So I'm, I'm watching as my touchdown stripes are running away from underneath me. Uh, and so just a little helpful aid, he, he said, yeah, just make sure to get it down. And I popped the nose down just a little bit. You know, I didn't want to slam it down uh, by any means, because if that was, uh, if there was any kind of tendency to want to slam it down, then at that point, just go around, try again, right? Uh, it's okay. No, nobody's perfect, right? We're all human. We can, we can go around, we can try again. That's the safe thing to do. Uh, but we just had enough space. Um, so brought it down. And then, uh, you know, brought, brought the nose down and then at that point had the, uh, the nose pointed back um, down the runway. And in order to bring the nose from that 
roughly 30 degree crab angle to straight with the runway. It's insane how much rudder input with, with uh, the right rudder in this situation, with that left crosswind's right rudder input in order to swing the nose back. Now, when you swing the nose over, at this point, the only way to correct for any drift uh, along the center line is with your ailerons. So if you have a left crosswind, once you're swinging to line back up with the runway, it's right rudder input to, again, line up with the runway and left aileron into the wind in order to maintain the center line. Uh, and so it's, it's a lot of this really critical coordination of making sure you're lined up with the runway and also maintaining your, your wings level um, and, and you know, keeping yourself over the center line. Uh, because that wind will come and, and drift you off the center line. And it did. Uh, we actually, I, I think I, I managed to touch down both mains at the same time. So oftentimes it's okay to touch the, the windward wheel down, meaning the, 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 the wheel that is into the wind, the main landing gear wheel. Uh, but I think I, I put down both. And I increased my aileron input. I think I needed a little bit more right rudder, but then all of a sudden there was another gust that came. And I remember the left wing, the windward wing, lifting up a little bit, which was very exciting. And so I had to give it more aileron to slam it back down <laughs> to get the, the wings level again. Not slam it per se, but but to get that wheel back on the pavement. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of input. And I'm sure people in the back um, would say that it wasn't the smoothest landing that I've had. Uh, and and I'd, I'd quite agree. But in this kind of situation, smooth landings are, are not something we are going for. We are looking to put the aircraft down in the first 3,000 feet, again, that touchdown zone, get it on the deck, and slow down. Uh, because once we're at, when we're at high speed still, you know, things can still happen, right? We're right in that very critical phase of flight on the landing. Uh, and the goal is to, to get it down, bring it to a stop. Once we're at taxi speed, okay, you know, that, uh, everything's good at that point, right? So that, that's the goal is getting the plane down and getting it to a, to a slow speed. So... Oh, it definitely, it got my heart rate going. Uh, it really did. Uh, but but the really helpful tips from the captain I was flying with was really awesome. Uh, because again, I um, yeah, that was definitely the, the highest crosswind I had ever landed in uh, to date. I think in a Cessna, the most I've ever done is about 25, 20 to 25 knots of crosswind in a Cessna. And that's a lot. Um, and the thing about a Cessna is it's it's very maneuverable. You know, you're, you're less than 2,500 pounds, uh, which in the situation of winds can actually, it's not the best thing for you because you can get rocked around quite a bit. Um, but in a jet, I mean, it's, you have more weight under you, but there's just more, more maneuvering that needs to happen. Uh, just because it's, it's so much bigger of an aircraft that you have to bring down. It's, it's very challenging. And given that you are way in front of your main landing gear, your crab angle looks ridiculous. You know, in a little Cessna, you're pretty much sitting right on top of your landing gear. So your crab angle, while you might be pointed, um, it, you know, you might be crabbed into the wind 30 degrees like I was uh, this and this one particular landing in Kennedy, you, you could be crabbed that far. But when you when you bring that crab angle back out, you're right there. You know, you're always pretty much lined up with the center line, even if you're you're looking to your right. But when you're in the jet and you are specifically with the 190, I'd uh, I'd have to look at the exact specifications of the the distance from the main landing gear to the the flight deck. It's probably somewhere along the lines of 40 feet or so. 
you're pretty far. So when you're crabbed, you know, you're fully crabbed till about 50 feet above touchdown before you swing the nose back over. It's a really weird sight picture because from where you're sitting in the flight deck, it looks like you're on top of the edge stripe of the runway. It doesn't look like you're on the center of the runway. It's really deceiving. So it takes a little bit of practice to kind of train your mind to tell yourself that, hey, we're, we're this far in front of the main landing gear, which means we're going to look like we're this far off the center line until we swing the nose back over, and then we put it down and then and then touch down the center line. So it's just a lot of things happening at once. Uh, and it, it was, huh, again, really got the heart rate going, which was which was really exciting. But like I said, it was, it was uh, I was flying with a great captain. He really talked me through it, uh, gave me some tips. And after landing, we got to the gate, you know, he uh, I asked him for a couple more tips on it, and he said, yeah, no, overall, it's really good. You know, you just started your flare a little too soon, but that's okay. You know, you got it down in the touchdown zone. That's all that matters. So it was just really awesome to have that positive feedback because that's anyone who is is newer to an industry and, and looking for any kind of guidance. I mean, that's the kind of attitude that that you definitely want uh, from from a mentor, right? I mean, that's one of the things that captains are is not only are they they have the final authority, they are the pilot in command. They're also there as, as a mentor for the first officer, which is really great. So this this guy in particular, uh, I really loved flying with him. So yeah, that was uh, that was the landing in uh, in Kennedy. It was it was very exciting. And one of the things we had to brief on the arrival was was the possibility of a wind shear event. So like I, I described with wind shear, it's that that sudden uh, drastic change in wind speed, uh, wind speed and or direction over a small area. And because of, of modern technology, we have some great detection systems. So on the ground uh, at airports, there's actually... Um, the ability to detect these wind shifts. And so if there are wind shear advisories, we will see that on the automated uh, the weather broadcast that comes out every hour. So it'll say uh, on the ATIS, the, the Terminal Information Service, again, this, this weather uh, broadcast every hour, uh, it'll show us that there are low-level wind shear advisories in effect. And that should perk us up, be like, oh, yep, we need to be extra careful and ensure that if we get uh, any kind of wind shear, or, or we should at least be prepared for any kind of wind shear, and that if it leads to an unstable condition, we'll go around. And modern jets also have their own wind shear detection on board, which is really unique. Again, it will detect that change in airspeed, and if it reaches a certain threshold, it's going to either give you a, a wind shear caution or a wind shear warning. So the wind shear caution is when you get uh, a gain of airspeed on final, which a gain of airspeed is it's not necessarily a bad thing right away. It's that if the gain occurs and then swiftly goes away, that's when it can be a, a bad situation. And then a wind shear warning is when you get a sudden loss in, uh, in airspeed off the nose. So in that situation, when you get less airspeed, you get a loss of airspeed off the nose. Now you've got less wind that's moving over the wings, and we don't have as much wind, uh, relative wind over the wings. Guess what? That means that your lift has drastically decreased, and you are going to sink towards the ground. And again, wind shear up at a high altitude doesn't matter so much, right? Because you've got a lot of altitude to work with. But this low-level wind shear, it's it's very dangerous because of how uh, how our um, how close the proximity to to the ground is we are on these arrivals. So. Uh, every jet's a little bit different, but um, 
it's, the, the, the system is, is mostly the same, where you get a caution, and most companies will train their pilots to say, if you get a caution on arrival, it's your discretion whether or not you want to continue. If you think you are within the, the stable criteria for the approach, you may continue. You don't have to continue. You can choose to go around if you just don't like it, and that's totally fine. A wind shear warning, however, is a situation where you need to go around, and you will perform the wind shear uh, escape maneuver. And the escape maneuver is, is essentially just to go around using maximum thrust. And instead of cleaning up the aircraft, meaning you're going to bring up the gear and, and bring up the flaps, you leave it in the configuration that it's in. And the reason for this is, is because you want to 100% focus on just escaping out of the wind shear uh, situation. You don't want to spend any time thinking about bringing up the gear or the flaps or anything like that. Anything that could divert your attention from getting the plane out of the unsafe situation. Additionally, one of the things that flaps do is while they do increase drag, they also increase lift. So by reducing the flaps, you're going to decrease lift a little bit until you pick up more speed. So while you do want to try and reduce the drag, in terms of a, a wind shear escape maneuver, you want to leave it as is until you're out of the wind shear warning. So what we do is we throw the thrust into its maximum detent. This will give it the absolute most power that the engine can output for, I think it's about five to 10 minutes. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a lot of power. It's, it's essentially like redlining your car, right? It's, it's giving you everything it's got. And then there is guidance, which will, uh, on the flight director, will tell you to, to pitch up and follow the guidance and until you get clear of the wind shear. So once you're clear of that wind shear uh, in the Embraer, the voice says clear of wind shear, or I think it says something like that. I think it says clear of wind shear. I'm pretty sure. Uh, been a little while since I've had to do this maneuver, uh, but we do train this maneuver every single year in our recurrent training, uh, which is really exciting. I was, I was kind of expecting on this particular arrival into Kennedy to get this, uh, maybe a caution at least, or maybe a warning, uh, but it didn't happen, uh, surprisingly. And I know it's going to happen to me at some point. I got many friends who have been in the industry uh, only as long as I have, and they've already gotten it. It's just a matter of time before I fly in a really windy day with wind shear advisories in effect. And then, oh, there's the warning. We got to go around. It's, it's going to happen. It's it's weather is. Uh, it's just it's always happened. It's always out there. You know, when you fly enough, when you do something enough, you're going to encounter some sort of environment. So it's just it's just a matter of time before I do encounter it. Uh, but like I said, once we get out of the wind shear situation, we can then recover uh, and then clean up the aircraft. Then we can bring the flaps and the gear up, come back around and try again. One of the things about wind shear is that when it occurs, it in certain situations, it won't stick around for too long. Um, specifically, it, uh, the most common wind shear event you can have in the summer has to do with thunderstorms and specifically uh, downdrafts or, or uh, microbursts, I should say which is this insanely uh, powerful column of, of air, a strong downdraft that the most dangerous location that it can be is right on the approach end of a runway because when a column of air goes down, once it hits the ground, it spreads out in all directions. And so when you're uh, entering the, the front, the, the, the leading side of the, of the microburst, you're going to get a, a sudden increase in performance because the wind is going to be... Uh, there's going to be a huge increase in, in a headwind, right? And if we have a huge, huge increase in a headwind, that's going to give us a lot of lift and, and we're going to go up. 
And so to, to counteract that, we're going to bring the throttles back and we're going to pitch the nose back over. But as we go through the middle of the microburst and then out to the trailing side, now all of a sudden we lose that increase in headwind, that increase in performance. We now get a downdraft and then on the back side of it, we're going to get huge tailwind. So now we're going to lose all of our lift. Uh, and in this situation, we were pitched down and throttled back. So now we lose that headwind component altogether. Now we have more downdraft. It's now the opposite. And, and a lot of times it's, it's too late. So the moral of the story with this one is that if there's any kind of microburst situation or even in certain wind shear situations, just circle around, go around, try again, maybe hold for 15 minutes and try again because those conditions won't stick around forever. Uh, and, and you'll see that on... There's plenty of YouTube videos out there of, of um, there might be like a, a thunderstorm cell that's right on top uh, of a, a major airport. And it's pretty interesting to, to watch uh, the flight radar videos of, of aircraft that go into these holding patterns and they just wait for you know, 15, 20 minutes before they can go uh, back to the airport. In some situations, they don't have enough fuel to get into the airport, so they have to go to their diversion airport. But nonetheless, a lot of these... Uh, weather phenomenon that that happen like a, like a microburst and thunderstorms and things like that that cause this very dangerous wind shear event it doesn't last too long 15 maybe 20 minutes is, is all it takes for it to clear out and so uh we'll we'll wait for that before trying again so so anyway that's uh that's pretty much my story on, on wind shear and crosswind landings like i said it was a a very exciting event uh, one of the biggest crosswinds that I've that I've encountered uh, ever and the next day we had a similar crosswind it wasn't quite as much uh, it was about 30-ish knots but again same thing Kennedy was doing the same arrival the winds were out of the south but they were still landing northwest and so it was just a direct crosswind about 30 knots and I took those tips that the captain had given me the day before applied them to this landing and even though the wind was maybe five knots less it was still a significant wind it was it was a lot of fighting the same thing having to tell myself hey you're right on track you're right on the localizer you're right on that center line even though it looks wrong you're right on the glide path everything's good once we got down through 50 feet and i started bringing the nose over i waited to add the back pressure till maybe 30 20 feet so that i made sure to get the plane down get those wheels on the pavement nailed the crosswind correction the the technique ailerons were into the wind added more right rudder this time we we're bam we were smacked down the middle of the runway and i will say that is the most satisfying feeling ever to have a really bumpy and windy arrival and to just absolutely nail the landing when the winds are whipping uh from from across from the left a huge crosswind it's just it's the most satisfying thing ever so anyway that's uh that's pretty much it for this episode about winds i hope you enjoyed it for all of you flying throughout the winter, uh, now you can kind of get a sneak peek of, of maybe why it's nice and smooth and then all of a sudden it's really bumpy at the low level. And you know, if you're coming into New York or any other uh, airports that are near the water and it's nice and smooth on the arrival, but you're looking down and you're looking out the window and you see all those white caps out there, just know the bumps are imminent. They're going to happen and it's going to be a windy landing. Uh, and maybe there could be some, some wind shear events. And, and if you go around, well, that's probably why there, uh, there was probably some sort of wind shear event. But again, anytime we do a go around, it's in an abundance of caution. Our number one uh, rule up front is safety. We want to get the aircraft down safely. And if we are unstable below a thousand feet, we're going to go around. We're going to try again. And like I said, with a wind shear event, it might just take 15 minutes of, of just holding before coming back and trying again. 
number one thing is safety as always. Well, folks, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Clear for Takeoff. I'll be back next time. And until then, as always, fly safe.